0: Listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of Saint Luke. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today, covering the following three topics from Luke 19:11 through Chapter 21: the authority of Christ and His Church, His heavenly in origin. Second, Christ's warning about the last days. And third, the Psalms teach us how to pray. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the third gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.
1: Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. The third question in this lesson deals with the beginning of the assigned reading, which is in the middle of chapter 19. And we're going to begin there, although that question doesn't occur till third in the lesson. We address it only after we have completed reading what St. Luke writes in chapters 20 and 21 because we need to understand what is going to take place in Jerusalem in the following chapters, to truly appreciate what Jesus says in his parable of the pounds. It's actually prophetic in light of what is about to take place in the city of Jerusalem. Now we have discussed the parable of the pounds in other lessons, in conjunction with the parable of the talents, in conjunction with what Jesus teaches about entrusting riches, to others, and how we will be held accountable for what we do with those riches, how we trade with them at the end when he comes again. So we are not going to be speaking directly about that in this question, but instead we will be looking at a couple of verses in this parable which people often sort of pass over, but in light of what is about to take place in Jerusalem, what Jesus says is very poignant. Now, We know that one of the themes in the Gospel of Luke is this idea of Jesus resolutely setting his face toward Jerusalem. So that from the beginning of his public ministry and then all the way through, there is this movement toward Jerusalem and it begins to pick up momentum. From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he knows that he is destined to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And all the Synoptic Gospel writers give an account of Jesus' three prophecies of his own passion and death. Now in chapter 18, St. Luke has recorded the third prophecy of Jesus' passion to his uh, disciples. So they hear him speaking of this need to go to Jerusalem where all things might be accomplished, where the Paschal Mystery is going to be fulfilled. Now he is nearing Jerusalem, so imagine what his disciples were thinking at this point. St. Luke tells us, verse 11, Jesus then went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to show itself then and there. They know something imminent is about to take place. He proceeds to tell the parable of the pounds. Now he talks about how a man of noble birth, this man of noble birth is Christ himself. He is speaking of a man of noble birth who went to a distant country. God becomes man. He goes to a distant country, takes our humanity, goes to earth, is born on earth, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes to a country that is very, very distant. It's outside the kingdom of God completely. The gates of heaven are closed. He goes to a distant country to be appointed king and then return. He's speaking of his own ascension into heaven. Now he will return as king. He goes to be appointed king. He gives his servants pounds, riches with which to trade, and tells them that he will be coming back. They will have to give an accounting. Verse 14, but his compatriots, and this is one of the verses we often just pass over, His compatriots detested him. The compatriots, you may have his fellow citizens, those of his own country. Now, who are those of his own country? Jesus is the man of noble birth. And St. Luke writes, Jesus says, his compatriots. Who are those of his own country? God's own people. God makes Israel a people that he can call his own. They are his own people. He says, you will be my possession, my people, and I will be your God. So it's the Jews, it's Israel that Jesus is referring to. And he says, the compatriots of the man of noble birth detested him and sent a delegation to follow him with this message, we do not want this man to be our king. Now they have made it clear from the beginning But it is going to gather momentum when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and they're going to become very focused on trying to lay traps for Jesus, catch him out so that they can turn him over to the governors, the people in power so that he can be destroyed, he can be crucified. They eventually, of course, succeed in doing this. Now he goes on to finish the parable of the pounds and he rewards those who have traded well, the man who, in fear buries his talent, is punished for that, and at the very end he says, As for my enemies, because now he has come back, he is king. As for my enemies who did not want me for their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. This is Jesus' final parable or teaching, so to speak, as he enters the city of Jerusalem. He is already declaring that unless they... Stop standing against Jesus in their heart that they will be executed at the end. These may sound like harsh words from the Lord, but we have to remember that in our attempt to destroy God, we can't destroy God, of course, but we try to destroy him by opposing his truth, by standing against divine revelation, by rejecting the church and the teachings of the church there are many ways that we are trying to destroy divine revelation, the Word of God. And what happens is that, of course, we can't succeed. But at the end of time, what we will discover is that in trying to destroy truth and life, we destroy ourselves. We self-destruct. So that what happens when, when God orders the execution of his enemies at the end, what happens is that, He simply commands the fulfillment of what his enemies chose all along, which is the destruction of truth and life. They destroy it for themselves, and they lose everything. They lose the the kingdom. St. Luke goes on, then, with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He writes, When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, he's in Jerusalem. He enters magnificently, triumphantly. The people, the crowds have been gathering and following him. They are amazed by his teachings. They are amazed by his miracles. And they recognize that he is the fulfillment. He is the king for whom they have waited. So we have this beautiful moment in the public ministry of Christ when he enters Jerusalem triumphantly, initially, before the crucifixion. But this too, the triumphant... Entry of Jesus into the Holy City points to the fulfillment of that when the king will enter triumphantly heaven at the end of time, when all things will be finished, time itself will come to an end. And those who believe in him will enter the city with him singing his praises. But because he is still fulfilling everything on earth, it's going to go awry, it's going to turn against him. And the people who one day are singing his praises in their fickleness turn against him, they are intimidated by the elders, the powers that stand against Christ, and so slowly they turn, and in a few days later, they will be the ones yelling, crucify him, crucify him, to Pilate in the presence of Christ. But Jesus enters, and they are singing, blessed is he who comes as king in the name of the Lord. What the people are singing are the words of King David. Now David, in the minds and hearts of Israel, was one of the greatest kings they had, David and his son Solomon. And David wanted to build a temple for God, and as we know, he said, what can I do? What kind of a house can I build for the Lord? And the Lord revealed to him, to the prophet, you can't build me a temple. You're just man, you're a creature, you can't. But your son will build a temple. Now, everything in divine revelation God fulfills in a literal and historical way to help us understand the mystery. But all of the earthly fulfillments of things point to a mystical, spiritual, heavenly, perfect fulfillment. So, it is true that a son of David will build the temple, and that son, historically, is his son Solomon. But Solomon, in building the temple, is a figure, a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. He reveals Himself as the definitive temple. It is Christ who builds a temple for God the Father, and that's the heavenly temple. It's a living temple. The members of His body, we as living stones and members of Christ's body, are the stones of that living temple. But the people don't understand all this. We only understand these things later, after the Holy Spirit is given us and we are enlightened. And we reflect back, just as the apostles did after Christ died and rose from the dead. They reflect back, and they remembered all these things that Jesus had taught them. And once they received the Holy Spirit, they begin to understand what Jesus had been teaching them and what he had been showing them all this time. Now, the people are overjoyed by Jesus, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people despise him. They hate him. They want to destroy him. And when he comes in, riding on a donkey, still in that humility, they want to make him king, but his kingdom, as he says before Pilate, is not of this world. So he comes riding in to great acclamations. They are singing the Psalm of David because in Christ, everything that was revealed in David and given David to know is fulfilled in the person of Christ. But they sing the words of the psalmist of David, and the Pharisees in the crowd, St. Luke tells us, said to him, Rabbi, or Master, reprove your disciples. Stop them from saying this. They're saying, don't you see what they're doing? They are calling you king. They are taking the words of David, our great father David, the great king of Israel, and they are attributing them to you. Stop them. And Jesus says, if they keep silent, the very stones will proclaim it. The very stones will cry out. So it must be proclaimed. It's one of those moments where, in a sense, out of the mouths of babes, as God says through the psalmist, out of the mouths of babes, his praise will be sung. So this is upsetting to the Jews. Right after this, we know we have the famous moment in Jesus' public ministry whereby he cleanses the temple. And that's something that is, it would have seemed violent to those who To the priesthood of the temple, to the chief priests, to the elders of the Jewish people. He cleansed the temple of the money changers, of the corruption, of the commerce, because they had turned the house of the Father into a place of commerce and money dealings and so on. And Jesus had this consuming zeal for the Father and for the Father's house. And so he cleanses the temple. But this also points to the cleansing of the temple that will take place as part of the Paschal Mystery. It additionally points to the fact that he is cleansing the temple as a preparation for the following days where he will remain in the temple presenting his final teachings because St. Luke says more than once in these chapters that Jesus taught in the temple every day from morning until night. He is teaching every day. This final revelation before the Paschal mystery is in the temple. The Jews are furious as to what has, what has gone on. And St. Luke says that the chief priests and scribes, verse 47, with the leading citizens tried to do away with him, but they could not find a way to carry this out because the whole people hung on his words. At the beginning of chapter 20, which is our question number one in the lesson, the Jews approached Jesus with a question. They're going to trap him. They approach him with this question and they say, Who gives you the authority for acting like this? Now what they're speaking of is what has just taken place as he's entered the Holy City. He is allowing the people to take the words of David and to apply them to Christ as the fulfillment. They are recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, whom King David spoke about, filled by the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, stop him. Why are you allowing this? And Jesus won't. Because what they are proclaiming is truth itself. He cleanses the temple. So when they say, what authority do you have to act like this? To allow people to recognize you as Messiah, to cleanse the temple of the people that we, the Jews, allow to do their business, to be there as they want. He says, what authority do you have for acting like this? And Jesus says in reply, I will tell you if you answer one question. He says, I will ask you one question first. He said, John's baptism, what was its origin? Was it heavenly or was it earthly? Was it of God or was it of man, human? Now we know from what St. Luke tells us that they go off aside and they debate among themselves how they're going to answer the question. We know what they were saying because it's likely that one or more, several of them later, convert to Christianity. And in speaking with the apostles, they would have told them about the conversations they had. They would have told them about the conniving they did behind the scenes, about how they tried to destroy Jesus. And so there are many references in the Gospels to this. But they go off and say to themselves, if we say that John's baptism was of heavenly origin... Jesus will say, Then why didn't you believe him? Because they didn't. They rejected the preaching of John the Baptist and his baptism of water in preparation for the baptism of Christ. So he will say, Why did you refuse to believe? And if we say that it was human in origin, the people will stone us. Now, that's an amazing statement in itself. We already sense how intense everything is becoming in Jerusalem. We go back not long ago to Jesus' saying, I come not to bring peace but division. There is so much division. They are on the verge of rioting almost in the city of Jerusalem already, days before the Paschal Mystery begins in those final culminating days. The Jews say the people are going to stone us if if we stand against John. So they agree to say nothing. They agree to say they don't know. And Jesus' response to them is, Then neither shall I tell you the origin of my authority. Neither will I tell you my authority for acting like this, he says. Now this is interesting because Jesus, in essence, is still revealing something by what he says. He is treating them in kind. He is saying, in essence, they do know, they recognize, they intuit, because they are made for truth. We all are. They intuit this power, certainly, that was in John the Baptist and his call, that there was a something, something otherworldly in his teaching and in the call, in the work that he carried out for God. They knew deep down inside that he was a true prophet. And in the presence of Christ, and John the Baptist didn't perform the miracles, his teaching wasn't as profound as that of the Word himself. They intuit this. In other words, they know enough, they sense enough that the origin of Jesus, that the authority of Jesus is divine. It is heavenly. It is of God. And because they refuse to acknowledge that, they would rather say they don't know than to acknowledge what they sense deep inside. Jesus isn't going to admit it. First of all, he doesn't have to to the crowds because they already know. The way they are responding to Jesus, they believe that his authority is divine. It is of God. So he doesn't have to announce it to them. And to the Jews, it will do no good. Their minds and hearts are closed. There is no point to his announcing it. So in a sense, he is revealing by what he says the truth in this situation. Now the church, the church instituted by Christ, is treated very much the same way. There is a constant question in the world as to the church. Where do you get the authority for acting the way you do? Where do you get the authority for saying what you do? For having the confidence in saying what you do? And we have to remember that divine revelation is clear on this matter, that Jesus institutes the church and that her authority, her mission, her orientation, and her goal all reside in Christ. We have to recall what Jesus says. It's recorded in the Gospel of St. John that the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord but receives everything from the Father. He speaks of this, and St. John records this. The Church goes on to say that so also those whom Jesus sends can do nothing on their own. They can do nothing apart from him. Jesus says this directly. But they can only do what they see the Father doing, what they see Christ doing, what they receive from Christ. And what they receive is the mandate for their mission and the power to carry it out. And they carry it out in confidence because they have received the Holy Spirit. This question will be posed by the world to Christ and to his church until the end of time. And they won't believe. In a sense, it says what Jesus reveals. There is nothing he can say to those who stand against him, because nothing he can say will convince them. It requires faith, humble faith, humble obedience of faith.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be continuing the authority of Christ and his church as heavenly in origin, and then she will be moving into Christ's warning about the last days. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Jesus goes on then to tell the parable of the wicked tenants. He says a man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants, and again, the vineyard owner is God, and he went abroad for a while. So, he's in heaven, so to speak. When the right time came, he sent a servant. So, God sends the first servant, and Jesus reveals that they thrash him, they they crush him. God sends another, a second. Then God sends a third. He sends three servants. Now, the servants are symbolic of the prophets. And the fact that he sends three, God sent many. But three indicates it's a number of fullness. God sent the fullness of his prophets the fullness of his servants, to his land. It's his vineyard. It's his land. The harvest belongs to the Lord. The people working that land, it's been given to them. But they're servants of the vineyard owner. They don't own the land. Neither do they own the harvest. But they begin to think that the land should belong to them and that the fruits of the land should be their own. So after destroying the servants, Jesus goes on to say that the owner of the vineyard said, What am I going to do? I know. He says, I will send them my own beloved son. Now, this is the father sending his son Christ. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they put their heads together saying, This is the heir. Now this follows immediately upon the Jews questioning him about where he gets the authority to act like this. Jesus then reveals, he knows what's in their hearts. They intuit by the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them, but we are created by the Spirit of God. We have the living Spirit of God being created in his image and likeness. He gives us the comprehension, the understanding to figure things out when we see what is obvious before us. They recognize, yep, I think that this is the heir. And they say, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance can be ours. Again, it's another prophecy, so to speak, of Jesus' own passion. He's already saying that they will do this. They will carry it out. Jesus says, so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is exactly what they're going to do in a matter of a few days. Now, we'll jump ahead a few verses. Jesus revealed, and St. Luke records it in his Gospel, that the Jews recognized that the parable was about them. And they recognized that what Jesus was telling them was about the inheritance, the inheritance, the promise. The promise given to Abraham, the promise given to David, the promise that to them they were the chosen ones. They would receive the inheritance. They would be the people of the Lord. And so, what Jesus says next would have been shocking to them because they understood that what God does is irrevocable. He doesn't withdraw a promise. And yet, this is what Jesus says What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and make an end of these tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Hearing this, they said, God forbid. That's an expression that we, it's somewhat common in the English language. We cannot fully appreciate the depth of what they said. On the one hand, they're saying, Impossible! This is impossible, based on what we understand of God. And yet, the Messiah is telling them this, and at the same time, it's almost like a prayer of desperation. May God forbid that such a thing could ever happen to us. We will be ruined. We will be devastated. This is what Jesus is telling them. It will be, if you continue to reject the stone, the rock of the Lord. St. Luke says he looked hard at them. Jesus looked hard, deliberately. That must have been such an intense look at that moment, penetrating. For God to look at us when we receive the gaze of God, it changes us. But to engage the countenance of God when he is looking in this hard, penetrating way at us, it must have undone them and even revealed to them The obstinacy in their heart, the hardness, the hatred, the hatred for God. He says, what does this text in the scriptures mean? And he quotes them a text that would have been very well known to them. The text about the stone, they understood in the Old Testament, God had frequently referred to himself as the rock of their salvation, the fortress. God who is is invincible, cannot be moved, stands firm, the unmovable one. And that his Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who would be sent, would be this one specially anointed, chosen, the Beloved of God, would be sent, and he would be that stone, that rock. But that he would be rejected. This was prophecy in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, you know that stone, that rock, that God has been talking to you about for so many centuries? And you know that That you were destined to reject the rock of your salvation and later discover that that very rock would be the foundation of the new Jerusalem, of the building. It would be the, the cornerstone, the capstone. This is language that comes from the Old Testament. Jesus at this point quotes this the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's announcing here again, as he does in other places in Scripture, he's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm that stone. You're rejecting me, and I am the cornerstone. There is no building that can be built except with the cornerstone who is Christ. He goes on to say, anyone who falls on that stone, anyone who tries to fall upon that stone, to conquer it, to take it, to to smother it, to destroy it, Jesus says, will be smashed. We'll be dashed to pieces. And we're surprised. We think of the person who falls upon the stone now, we can't hurt the stone, but what we don't realize is that we destroy ourselves. We kill ourselves by falling upon that stone. Jesus says this, And anyone that the stone falls upon will be crushed, will be made dust. So this is the stone. The scribes and the chief priests would have liked to lay hands on him that very moment. They, they're getting this. They're God's giving them even the actual grace in this moment to understand it. Because God's calling them to repentance, and he is letting them choose again and again. And of course, they're going to be so confirmed in that choice, they're going to be so determined in it, that they will proceed and put him to death. But they realize that the parable was aimed at them, and they were afraid of the people, he says again. And then we have, in the remainder of chapter 20, the teachings of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, which we have handled, of course, in other questions and other lessons in the series. In chapter 21, then, we come to Jesus' discourse on the last days and the destruction of the city in Jerusalem. Now, St. Luke tells us that they were talking about the temple and they were admiring it. And it seemed to them that the temple was indestructible. Now, in one way, it sort of was, but as we know, it wasn't indestructible because Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. And he is speaking, of course, of Jerusalem prophetically because it hasn't happened yet. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans and the temple virtually destroyed with it. But he is speaking of himself. And there is a way in which all that God reveals about the destruction of the temple and the paschal mystery which takes place in the holy city of Jerusalem all points to the mystery of Christ and his church. Again, what God reveals. Has a certain kind of fulfillment in a literal and historical way in salvation history. But all of these events teach us, because we learn living in space and time, they teach us the lessons in a tangible and understandable kind of way, while at the same time pointing to a greater reality, which is mystical, spiritual, and heavenly. Now that reality. In the Old Testament, divine revelation is imperfect and provisional. So whatever is fulfilled is fulfilled in a historical kind of way, but not in a real way, a mystical way. Not until the New Testament in Christ do we have the fulfillment of all things in the person of the Son. When Jesus establishes his church and pours his Spirit out on the church, his presence, his authority his own mission, all of these things remain present in the teaching, governing, sanctifying church so that in the the New Testament of God, we have the reality now present on earth in a literal and historical way, but also in a mystical and heavenly and spiritual way. But we have the definitive fulfillment of that mystery at the end of time in heaven So that the holy city of Jerusalem that God has been speaking about and building from the beginning of salvation history, from very early in salvation history, is going to be definitively completed and revealed in the heavenly Jerusalem. And these choice stones that Scripture speaks about that are hewn out of this precious rock and they are fit precisely into the building are... No longer earthly stones, they are living stones, as scripture tells us. It's the people of God. We are the members of Christ's body. It begins with Adam, where God takes stone, he takes dust, he takes clay, the earth. He blows his breath into that clay and makes us living beings. But we lose the life of God. We're dead all those centuries, mankind. God restores us to new life. And now we have become living stones again. But we are those living stones only if we are configured to Christ, the one true temple, the definitive temple, the holy Jerusalem. We must be configured to Christ, and his spirit must reign in us. He must be king in our hearts, and we must live according to the spirit of God. Otherwise, we can't be used as a stone to build up the definitive temple, the holy city of Jerusalem. This is one of the things that the church means when she talks about how outside the church there is no salvation. Outside Jesus Christ, the temple of God, there is, there is no salvation. There's no participating in being part of the building up of the temple of God. When Jesus presents his teachings on the last days, they can be, they can be difficult for us to hear. They can be very disquieting because he speaks of wars and revolutions and earthquakes and famine and plagues and persecution and martyrdom and all the turmoil of the earth and how the Gentiles, how the world will turn against the Christ, turn against the holy city of God. Everything that happens to Jesus must be fulfilled in the body of Christ who is the church on earth. And just as Christ foretold his own passion and death, the church, in imitation of Christ, she is his body, she lives as one with Christ, continues to prophesy her own passion and death. She suffers with Christ in her life, but there will be a culmination to the church's passion and death at the end of time. And she speaks of this even in the Catechism. Because we are the stones of the church, the living stones, those who are acknowledged, recognized to be the stones of that, of that church, of that holy city, will be treated the same way. Therefore, as Jesus tells us, St. John records this, they will hate those who are Christians, those who are followers of Christ. And he says, but remember, remember that when they hate you, they hated me first. They hated me before you. The reason the world will hate us is because we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. Jesus does not tell us these things, these prophecies of the end times and of what will happen to frighten us. He tells us so that we will know when that day comes, we will think back. He says, I will send you my spirit who will remind you of all these things, who will remind you of what I have taught you, And like the apostles, we will think back and reflect on what Jesus said, and we won't be confounded. We will understand that all these things must take place before Christ comes again. And this is why he says repeatedly, he says, Remember, there are certain things that must happen before the Son of Man comes in his power and glory. Now, Jesus is very clear in telling us these things. We have them recorded in the Gospels. St. Paul talks about them also. In his letters. So, Jesus tells us, if you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you don't belong to the world, because my choice has drawn you out of the world, that is why the world hates you. This is why St. Paul can speak of how he rejoices when the world persecutes him and hates him, because it's as if he's saying, they must recognize Christ in me. They must recognize the Spirit of God in me. And he rejoices. And we have to we have to sort of stop thinking of things in such a human and earthly and temporary way and think of them in an eternal way in order to understand the great mystery that Jesus is revealing to us. Now, yes, Jerusalem must undergo destruction. He tells us that you will be persecuted. Verse 12, before all this happens, you will be seized and persecuted. You'll be handed over to the synagogues and to imprisonment. And you will be brought before kings and governors for the sake of my name. And that, Jesus says, will be your opportunity to bear witness. Do you remember what Jesus says when he's before Pilate? In the Passion, St. John records this. He says, for this reason, Pilate is asking him about his kingdom. And and if he has all this power, he's probably wondering why his own men don't step in and try to fight and save him. And Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, for this I came to bear witness to the truth. And he must suffer and die so that the truth can be revealed. Now, This is a great mystery because when we are configured to Christ, in a certain sense, when God sees that we are serious about being his servant, remember, Christ is the suffering servant of God. He does not come in his power and glory until all things are fulfilled. The way that he most profoundly bears witness to God is precisely by allowing himself to undergo persecution, suffering, and death so that the way he accepts the will of God is what speaks so powerfully about eternal life, that this world isn't the final word, and that he knows he will be raised up. We know the same thing. That's why we aren't afraid of suffering. That's why we're not afraid of death. We need the Spirit in order to, to accept it without fear and trembling. But if we have the Spirit, we understand that, even to pass through death, that there is eternal life beyond the veil. And that that is where we place our hope. So Jesus says, also recorded in the Gospel of John, I have told you all this so that you will not fall away. He says, the time indeed is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's doing a holy service to God. They will do these things, though, because they have never known either the Father or me. So he's telling us, this is why they will carry it out. But I have told you all this so that you will remember what I told you when the time comes. So he says, this is our opportunity to bear witness. And this is what Jesus wants us to understand because we will all have this moment in our lives. We bear witness to Christ in the ordinary circumstances of our daily life. But there will be a point in time when God will draw us into the suffering, the humiliation, the injustice, the persecution of Christ his Son. And in those moments, the very moment when we all of a sudden think we want to turn back, we begin to recoil from suffering, it's at that precise moment when we most eloquently and powerfully bear witness to God, because of the Spirit that lives in us. This is what St. Paul is telling the Thessalonians in his second letter when he says, We, the apostles, we continually pray for you so that you might become worthy of God's call. This is our call. It's what Jesus says before Pilate. He says, For this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's our call. And he says, We pray continually, St. Paul says, that you may become worthy of God's call so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and you in him. Writing his letter to the Hebrews, he says, Do not lose your fearlessness now. Right at the moment of the passion, he says, Don't now recoil. God has brought you to this point. The reward is so great. We can't forget this. He says, We're not the sort of people who draw back and lose our faith. We are the sort of people who keep our faith until our souls are saved. And we enter then into this this glory of Christ. And we will share in that when he comes again. He says, you will certainly be hated universally on my account. St. Luke records this. And he says, but not a hair of your head will be lost. Your perseverance will win you your lives. Jesus tells us, no one can touch a hair on your head. Yes, we suffer. We die. They can destroy us. They can burn us to death, feed us to the lions or whatever. But we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that we are secure. As St. Paul says, I know who I have entrusted myself to. I'm safe. He's not afraid of torture, of being stoned, of shipwreck, whatever. His life is in the hands of the Lord. And he knows he will be raised up on the last day. This is what makes the apostles, this is what makes us as an apostolic people of God, fearless. In the face of every kind of horror, in the face of the impending doom that will be upon the world in the final days, there is a momentum that is sort of gathering or picking up as we approach the second coming of Christ. We have been in the last days or the final days ever since Christ ascended into heaven. The Church says we have been in the the final days. But as we wait for Christ, our Savior, Christ, our Creator, to come again, it's as if, as He nears, the whole universe, the earth, sort of trembles because it senses in some way or form that the Creator, its Creator, is nearing. You know, Scripture speaks even how the brute beasts, the dumb animals, when God became man and was born in a stable as the prophet Isaiah says, that even the ox and the donkey recognize they came to the stable to see this child, their creator, in the straw. They're dumb animals. And the prophet Isaiah says, And you, Israel, you can't recognize your Savior and your rational beings created in God's image. All dominion has been laid on the shoulders of, of this Son that will be born to us the child that is given us, as the prophet Isaiah says. Man is a creature of God, the pinnacle of creation. We are made in God's image and likeness. And as the church tells us, in our bodily condition itself, it's a great mystery, man sums up the elements, man sums up in himself the elements of the material world. There is a way in which We are a summary in our bodily condition of the whole cosmos. This is something the sciences can't even begin to probe the depths of. The mystery is so great. But when God becomes man and takes our humanity to himself, there is a way in which all things begin to be subjected to God in the person of Christ. Scripture tells us, God says, that he will subject all things to himself in his Son. He will make everything, he will place it at his feet, as a footstool. And at the end of time, as St. Paul says, with everything resubjected, and we have a huge role in this as collaborators with God, by how we see and understand and use created goods. Because in a sense, everything is subjected to us, we subjected to Christ, Christ subjects it to the Father, and everything is restored and put in its right place at the end. All things will be all, and everything will be in its right order, and not only restored, we will then have a new heavens and a new earth that 's what Scripture is speaking about this tremendous mystery. so for us to to play the role that God has given us to strive to be worthy to that call, all we have to do is to work with grace in the ordinary circumstances of our day-to-day lives. And when those moments come where we are submerged in hardship and trial and the Paschal Mystery, we must remember that everything done in a supernatural spirit is very powerful. It has great power in drawing others to faith and to God. So we have, in a sense, the more closely we are drawn to the Paschal Mystery of Christ, The greater privilege, it's like our portion and lot, as Scripture says, we have this privileged share in establishing in the person of Christ the new heavens and the new earth.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering The Psalms Teach Us How to Pray. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Finally then, our last question is on the Psalms. And you may have noticed how frequently in the lessons of St. Luke there are many, there are whole Psalms given in the readings. One of the reasons being that St. Luke One of his points of interest in this gospel is prayer and the life of the Spirit and how frequently he records Jesus' teachings on prayer, on the importance of prayer, the necessity of prayer, perseverance in prayer, the humility with which we must approach prayer, all these different things, the power, the efficacy of prayer. And so we read the Psalms. The Psalms are, of course, from the Old Testament. The Psalms are divine revelation. Throughout salvation history, God has been teaching man to pray. He not only teaches us in sort of an abstract way, He gives us the very words of prayer so that He makes prayer easy for us. Now, in the New Testament of Christ, we are given the supreme prayer, the Church. The supreme liturgy is the Eucharist. And within that, appropriately, we always pray the Our Father, which is the prayer that the Lord Himself taught us, and we pray that in the Spirit of Christ. There are other prayers in scripture that the church incorporates into her life and in the Old Testament that the Jews prayed daily and in the temple liturgies. Now the Psalms constitute one whole book of the Old Testament. We call it also the Psalter. It is comprised of 150 Psalms and it constitutes the masterwork of prayer in the Old Testament. The church continues daily. The church has prayed the Psalms for the duration of her life, and we'll pray them until until the end of time. The Psalter is that book in which the Word of God becomes man's prayer. Christ fulfills all the Psalms in his person, in his prayer to the Father. It's beautiful. It's powerful. When we look at the Psalms, if we were to take the whole of them and study them, we would find that the Psalms contain all the movements of man's heart, all the situations, all the conditions, all the passions, the emotions, the feelings, the attitudes. They're all there. In other words, everything that we need in our humanity is contained somewhere or another in the Psalms. We can't help but notice in praying the Psalms how, how many of them have this this moaning and groaning, this sort of a complaint. Lord, why do the wicked prosper, the psalmist says. We would hesitate to say these things to God, but God gives us these words because he understands. And it's part of the human experience of desiring justice, for example, and having it withheld from us. And it goes on year in and year out, and our heart begins to say, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? The Lord knows this. He gives us the words to say. But the power and beauty in the Psalms, which are also traditionally called simply the praises, there are not only many hallelujahs, which means praise the Lord, within the the content of the Psalms, but regardless of what the Psalm is about, there is always, always the attitude of the Psalmist placing his trust in God all over again. Regardless of what happens, he's in the midst of of terror. They're tearing him apart. At the end, he says, but I place my hope in God. Psalm 22, it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prays the words, the opening words of Psalm 22 from the cross. So we're permitted to, in our humanity, our heart asks this question. But if we read the whole psalm, the Holy Spirit takes us through to completion what we need. We are built up, we are consoled, we are encouraged in praying the Psalms. We learn we learn how to pray in the Lord and they they become a part of us so that even certain phrases or verses from the Psalms can spring up from us amid hardship or trial. We ask why the the wicked prosper. Perhaps we pray the opening words of Psalm 27. We remind ourselves, we step back and we say, I know that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom should I be afraid? And then a few verses later, the psalmist goes on to say, Even though an army stand against me, my heart does not fear. Though a war be waged against me, as it was against Christ, I shall not be afraid. One thing I ask of the Lord this I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to visit his temple. And that's not even the completion of the psalm. By the time we get to the end, we know in whom we have put our hope. War is waged against us, maybe in the workplace, and justices are being done. We are being trampled underfoot. But the words of the Lord spring up in our heart, and we know instantly we remember we remember that our goal is heaven it's not any earthly work that's the beauty of the psalms which is why of course the church prays them in her liturgy of the hours which is sometimes called the divine office or sometimes priests or sisters will refer to as the breviary it's the prayer of the church prayed it has seven hours it consists of what are called hours it doesn't take a whole hour to pray each Of the seven segments, there are shorter and longer ones. But all seven are comprised of the Psalms. And the praying church, praying this for centuries and centuries, she prays the whole Psalter virtually every four weeks. Year in and year out, year in and year out. And in fact, I encourage some of you, if you've never prayed the Divine Office, to perhaps consider starting with morning and evening prayer. Those would be the two key ones to start with. And you simply pray morning prayer upon rising at dawn and evening prayer at the end of the day. It takes maybe twenty minutes twenty five minutes and you are aware that you are praying with the universal church. The power of the psalms I hope you have the time to read the the catechism readings on the psalms because they 're really they 're very beautiful and very very instructive that while we pray the psalms, the psalms are inseparably communal. We are praying with the universal church, with the people of God and at the same time, everything in them is personal. We talk to God and God speaks to us. They are the prayer of the liturgy of the temple in the Old Testament and they're the prayer of the liturgy of the universal church now, but at the same time, they're the prayer of the human heart. At different times in our lives, different days, different weeks, certain lines will come off the page that are that enlighten us, console us, strengthen us, are an answer to prayers. And another time it will be other verses or lines. It concerns not only those who are praying, but it concerns everyone. In praying the Psalms, we are praying with the Church, praying all over the world, 24 hours a day, really. That's the idea because if you take the world in its approximate division of 24 time slots, as the world turns, so in other words, in the communities the sun rises and the sun sets, there are thousands upon thousands of people praying in unison, say between maybe 6 and 8 or 8.30 a.m. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people praying these psalms, the petitions, the Our Father reading a little bit of Scripture, and it, it's a movement, it's a wave that goes around and around the world and will until the end of time. And it's beautiful and powerful. So in this way, we embrace all people in the world, and all of creation. The Psalms recall the saving events of salvation history, but they point to, they lead us to, they prepare us for everything yet in the future and the fulfillment of all things in Christ at the end of time. They commemorate the promises of God, while at the same time reminding us that that we shall yet see and hear and know the fulfillment of those promises in heaven when we have the beatific vision, so that we await the Messiah who will come in power and glory and fulfill all the words that God himself has revealed in the Psalms. It's an amazing thing that Christ, we know, fulfilled the Psalms, the content of the Psalms, and the prayer itself of the Psalms in his life. God revealed the Psalms. The Psalms are divine revelation. So God is speaking and teaching man how to pray in the most beneficial way. All the Psalms are fulfilled in the person of Christ, which is so powerful. And so we continue to pray those Psalms in our daily lives. Therefore, regardless of what kind of violence is done to us, persecution, suffering, trial and hardship, and you will find all of that in the Psalms. In the Psalmist, who is King David at one point, remember he is he is being hunted down by Saul because Saul wants to destroy him and take his life. He encounters calamities. He He falls. He sins and has to acknowledge, confess the sin in himself. And he prays as a beggar before God, asking for his forgiveness and mercy. All of these things are in the Psalms. But everything that David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a preparation for what Christ will pray and speak and fulfill in his person. So now when we pray the Psalms, we pray them with the fullness of the Spirit that has been poured out to us. So it's a very powerful resource for us in the life of prayer according to divine revelation. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George will be covering the following two topics, from Luke chapter 22 through Luke 23, verse 31, the Last Supper and the Passion of Christ. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.